those staying up here, uh, if you would please turn with me. We're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Um, so on the night of his betrayal, um, while Christ was speaking words of uh, encouragement and warning to his disciples, he said the following, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Um, of the many things that we can take from this statement, um, I'd like us to consider this, that the church, uh, rightly called, is a community of love. Faith is that which makes one uh, part of the church, but love is that which identifies us as members of the church to other people and unites us to the same. Um, this morning, I'd like us to consider love and what it looks like for a church to be a community of love to the point that by our love, we can be identified as Christ's disciples. Um, and if you would, like I said, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to study this morning um, the Apostle Paul's words to a church that had nearly altogether lost its loveliness. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Let's pray. Our Father, the Apostle John writes for us that God is love. And we know from scripture and from experience that you have loved us with a great love. We ask, Father, as we consider this uh, love chapter, that you would uh, uh, work in us, Father, that we would come to a greater knowledge of what love is. And, Lord, that uh, we ourselves would have more love, Father, that we would become here at Redeemer Fellowship Church a community of love. And we ask all of this in your Son's name. Amen. For the last uh, year or so, our West Side Growth Group has been making its way through this book, 1 Corinthians, 
Um, and a recurring theme of this letter of Paul to this church is their division. Um, in the very first chapter, in verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. The Corinthian church here is rebuked for their division over leadership. Um, as it says in verse 12 of the first chapter, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul continues this line of rebuke through the fourth chapter. Um, in this sixth chapter of this epistle, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for their suing one another, and as he says, going to the law before the unrighteous, as opposed to settling disputes among the brethren. In the eighth chapter, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for their unwillingness to surrender their rights for the sake of the conscience of their brothers, um, particularly in that chapter as it relates to food offered to idols. In the eleventh chapter, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for their division in the administration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we read that some people ate entire meals and even got drunk off of the elements, and that other people went home hungry because there was none left for them. Lastly, in the 12th chapter, Paul warns his Corinthian audience not to divide over spiritual gifts or to see other people as lesser or greater according to their gifts, which was an issue for this church. Um, they apparently measured people's worth by their gifts. And so Paul labors the point in that chapter that every member of the church uh, and their gifts is necessary to the function and health of a church. No member is expendable as much as the Corinthians might have thought that. We can deduce from these things, I think, that the Corinthian church had nearly altogether lost its loveliness. Uh, that identifying mark of a true church, according to Christ's words that we looked at at the beginning. Love, of course, this is an original definition of mine, is that affection whereby one is bound to another. And I think we can see the lack of love in the Corinthian church in their division from one another, their separation from one another. And I think that Paul deduced this as well, which is why he wrote what he did when he did in this 13th chapter. Um, so I want us to look at this chapter with the hope that Redeemer would not follow in the Corinthians' footsteps, uh, but that we would grow into a church utterly marked by the theme of this chapter, love. Um, so first we're going to see the necessity of love, second the fruits of love or the character of love, and third we'll see the permanency of love. In verses 1 through 3 we see the necessity of love. Paul makes a series of statements where he insists on the uselessness of very important things without love to accompany them. Uh, things like spiritual gifts, knowledge, faith, and acts of charity. So that when love is talked about here, it is, as Jonathan Edwards says, spoken of as that which is, in a distinguishing manner, the great and essential thing. Love is the great and essential thing. In the first verse, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. As we read this epistle, we can see that spiritual gifts are important to the Corinthians, 
um, especially those that we commonly refer to as miraculous, stuff like prophecy, healing, um, and speaking in tongues. To speak in the tongues of men here um, refers to the spiritual gift to communicate spiritual truth to other people in a language that's foreign and unfamiliar to the person speaking. Um, this is a gift that some in Corinth had um, that others did not have, uh, but it was a gift highly prized and even in some circles idolized. Uh, Paul himself says to seek after this gift earnestly in the 14th chapter. And in chapter 14, verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But as much as Paul and the Corinthians value this gift, um, he says here that without love, it's as if one were a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In writing the tongues of angels, I think that Paul employs a sort of uh, hyperbole or exaggeration um, to emphasize his point here. Uh, men are not able to speak in the tongues of angels. There's no indication in Scripture that we can. But even if we could and had not love, we would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. By noisy gong or clanging cymbal, um, I think we can take the apostle to mean that uh, this gift of tongues without love is useless, even annoying, because it's not being used for the purpose for which it was given. And certainly this applies to more than just tongues. Uh, I don't think that the apostle means to strictly limit this rebuke to tongues. Uh, Paul labors the point in chapter 14 that all gifts are given for the purpose of a building, encouraging, and consoling other Christians. But gifts exercised for personal gain or profit um, without love to others, to uh, build, encourage, and console others is like a symbol or a gong. These are instruments that are meant to add to the performance of an orchestra being used on their own. In an orchestral piece, they add the, the necessary touches to take a performance to the next level. But on their own, they are loud and they're annoying. So it is with gifts, even speaking in tongues. If I speak in tongues, but do not have love for my brother or sister in doing so, I am as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I teach, if I preach, uh, if I serve, if I exhort, if I evangelize, but don't have love while I'm doing that, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I think that this same reasoning can be applied to the first part of the second verse where he talks about prophecy. Uh, in verse 2, Paul writes, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul here, when he speaks of uh, mysteries and knowledge, probably refers to that of a spiritual sort. Um, Christian doctrine, I think, is what Paul talks about here. Um, elsewhere in this epistle, Paul writes that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There he was offering a rebuke to Christians who are mature in knowledge, but infantile in their love to one another, demonstrating that such a thing is entirely possible. Uh, we profess to be a Reformed church, and uh, one of the most common objections cited to joining a Reformed church is not necessarily the doctrine, but often that the people um, who adhere to it lack love and charity. 
Sound and precise doctrine and close scriptural exposition are hallmarks of our tradition. Um, but we who love our doctrine often have a reputation for tearing people down with it. And that's why Paul makes the comparative statement that he does, that love is better than knowledge. If the two are to be pitted against one another, because whereas knowledge builds or puffs up, love builds up. Um, and here in this chapter, Paul makes an even harsher statement. If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. I think of myself as large because of my knowledge, but in reality I'm very small. The apostle says I'm nothing if I don't have love to accompany that. Knowledge without love is fair sake and it's ugly. Uh, now we have to keep in mind that Paul himself and various other places in the scriptures emphasize the importance of knowledge. Uh, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, we read, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. In Psalm 94, verse 10, we read that God is he who teaches man knowledge. Uh, God values knowledge of him and his word. Um, I mean, we can't believe or obey or love what is not known to us. But if we don't have love, our knowledge doesn't avail us of anything. I want to share a, uh, a quote with you from Charles Hodge, who's my favorite theologian of the 19th century. Um, writing on this verse, he says this, Satan may have, and doubtless has more intelligence than any man ever possessed, and yet he is Satan still. Satan may have and doubtless has more intelligence than any man ever possessed, and yet he is Satan still. Paul continues in verse 2, And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. This is a sort of callback um, to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, um, where he says, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Such powerful faith indicates an unwavering and an unshakable trust and confidence in God and His promises. But if this faith is not accompanied with love, which is a fruit of the same Spirit who gives us faith in the first place, then we are, as Paul says, nothing. Now, no one can say that faith of a saving sort is not important. I mean, nobody else talks about the importance of faith in the entire Bible as much as Paul does. But he also says here, um, that this faith spoken of, this faith without love, it's no good for anybody but ourselves. Um, so that if a person had this kind of faith, they could care less about sharing the source of their comfort and confidence with other people, so long as it's theirs, so long as it belongs to them. I mean, it's a really strange thing here that Paul mentions, an extremely strong faith without the most important fruit meant to accompany it and be produced by it. Um, Paul says elsewhere that faith works through love, and if our faith does not, we are nothing. Finally, regarding the necessity of love, we read in verse 3 that if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul here has in mind acts of selflessness, um, so charity and martyrdom. Uh, acts that we assume by nature are done out of love, but what he indicates here is that it's possible to do these things without love. Martyrdom without love for God is possible. Charity without love is possible. And neither is commendable in God's eyes. 
neither gains you anything from God. As Paul says, it, it follows that what pleases God is acts of selflessness done out of love. Um, God repeatedly in Scripture is all about the motivations of the heart. And what looks to us to be a tremendous and selfless act is profitless in God's eyes if it's not done with love. I'd like us to turn our attention now to verses 4 through 7, uh, a section that we all probably know and are familiar with, um, where we will find, as Jonathan Edwards calls them, the fruits of love. In verses 1 through 3, Paul showed that having love is a necessity, and Paul now demonstrates for his readers how love flows out and expresses itself. Now, when Paul here says that love is, he of course means the person who loves is, the person who harbors love is, so that by these fruits we can see who it is that has love. When Jesus again says that people will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another, he has these things in mind. And as a sort of preliminary note, it's almost assumed by the text that the person demonstrating these fruits of love has a relationship of some sort with the person whom they are extending their love to. Uh, again, this is written to a church. And the things listed, as we will see, only make sense if there's another person in the equation uh, besides the person extending that love. So that, in order for us to properly demonstrate our love to other people, we have to build relationships with those people. And if Redeemer Fellowship is going to be a community of love, then relationships here have to be developed and sustained. Again, uh, love is that affection whereby one is bound to another. And so my, one of my challenges to us this morning is for us to develop these relationships with one another so that we can properly express our love for one another as members of the same church. In verse 4 we read, Love is patient and kind. I'm no Greek scholar, um, but from what I've read, what's translated as patient here would be better translated as long-suffering. I think the KJV says suffereth long. Um, Paul has in mind here patience in respect to evil or injury sustained from others. Kindness, of course, has reference to uh, compassionate and active concern for others' well-being. So that what Paul has in mind here um, is that a person who is loving is willing to receive injury from other people and much injury at that, but at the same time is willing to do good by others. And I think this is best demonstrated for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates patience in being sinned against and kindness in sending his son to save those same sinners. Thanks be to God. Paul continues, love does not envy or boast. Paul basically says here that uh, love and envy or jealousy are mutually exclusive so that when we find ourselves to be envious of others, we can tell that we are not loving those people. Envy can be expressed in two ways. I wish I had what that person had, um, or I wish that person did not have what they have. Boasting is the opposite. Uh, look at what I have, or look at what I don't have. All this to say that the person who loves is content with what they have, and they don't brag about it. Uh, we aren't all gifted in the same way, 
We don't all have the same finances. We aren't all in the same life situations. Uh, but love properly demonstrated is okay with that and recognizes that it's God who apportions those things to each. And rather than boasting about what we have compared to others, we thank God for what we do have and we use it for His glory. It is not arrogant or rude. This can be seen as a sort of continuation of the last line. He's saying that love is not conceited or mean-spirited. Um, the person who loves, rather, properly humbles themselves, uh, seeing how low they are in the grand scheme of things, and acts accordingly. It does not insist on its own way. Um, this, again, builds on previous thought. Love is concerned with the well-being of the loved ones and not its own welfare. Paul's not saying that out of love we never do anything contrary to the desires of the ones being loved. I mean, that's probably most obvious to parents. Sometimes you have to do things that your kids don't like out of love for them and for their own well-being. But what Paul is saying here, basically, is that if we love, we never act selfishly. We do things out of the well-being for other people, out of concern for other people's well-being rather than our own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Uh, when Paul speaks of irritability, he, of course, is talking about being grumpy or grouchy. Love is not quick-tempered. Uh, this harkens back to verse 4. Love is patient. Not only do loving people suffer long, but they don't get ticked off in the process. It is not resentful. This is better translated, I think, as love keeps no record of wrongs. Um, you are not being loving when you bring up an old injury um, or when you hold a grudge against somebody for something that they've done in times past. Even more, God says, I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. We are in a dangerous position when our sins are forgiven and forgotten and when we fail to forgive and forget the sins of other people. I mean, there is an entire parable about that. Love does not do that. In verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The meaning of wrongdoing is obvious here. Um, love does not rejoice in sinful life and practice. But the meaning of truth here is not so obvious, um, and neither is the connection of truth and wrongdoing. Um, truth in Scripture is often pitted against wrongdoing or unrighteousness. And when it is, it's always coupled with righteousness. Um, and I think that's what Paul has in mind here. If you look at uh, 3 John, verse 3, we read, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Um, so that I think what Paul really means here is that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices when one walks in the truth. When one lives and does righteously in light of what they know to be true from Scripture. Again, he is writing to a church. And it's easy in a church to let things slide. It's easy to refrain from calling someone to repentance who is not living in a manner consistent with what they know to be true. I mean, the Corinthian church had a guy who was sleeping with his father's wife. And they did nothing about it until the Apostle Paul wrote to them about it. But if we love that person... We will insist on their well-being that they walk in the truth and will rejoice when they do so. Finally, for this section, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is a sort of summary statement of what's come before. 
tying all things together. Love bears in silence um, all troubles and injuries and annoyances. Love believes all things. It gives people the benefit of the doubt and readily receives uh, their defense of themselves until they prove their testimony to be untrue. Love hopes all things. And I think this means that love hopes for the best for every person. Uh, love endures all things. The Greek word for endures here is apparently a military word. Um, so that what Paul has in mind is that love sustains the assault of an enemy, of persecution, of suffering. And if we would be a community of love, we'd do well to remember these things. I'd like us now to look at the permanency of love in verses 8 through 13. And for the sake of time, we'll be briefer in this section. Um, love, as it was in the first three verses of this chapter, are here included in value statements concerning prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. Um, where in the first three verses of these chapter, these things were put forward as useless without love, Paul here shows one of the reasons for that. While these things will pass away, love will remain. It may jar us um, that Paul says knowledge will pass away, uh, but I think we have to keep the context in mind here. Uh, this chapter comes in the middle of a discussion of gifts, and it's here coupled um, with other gifts, so that we can understand knowledge here to refer to the gift of knowledge, which is listed as a spiritual gift in other places in Scripture. Some people are given greater capacity for knowledge um, than others in this life, but when the perfect comes, as he says, this and other gifts will pass away. Everyone's knowledge will be made perfect. Um, if you're like me and you're discouraged sometimes by your lack of gifts in comparison to other people or your lack of knowledge in comparison to other people, this is encouraging. Paul gives an encouragement that all that will radically change when the perfect comes. That is when we are found on the other side of glory. Paul goes on, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This is an illustration of the points he makes in the preceding verses. Uh, take knowledge, for example. Um, when we are children, we know things. Children are intuitive, and they're smart, and they're able to put things together pretty quickly, more than we often give them credit for. But a child's knowledge, per se, uh, that 2 plus 2 equals 4, is vastly different than the knowledge of calculus or trigonometry. Children know that money buys things. But that's completely different than knowing that money belongs to a complex economic system that goes through cycles of inflation and deflation, or a knowledge of accounting, or a knowledge of taxes and stocks. Paul's just saying that what we experience and what we know and what we do now is, in the grand scheme of things, similar to a way that a child knows and experiences and does things. But when we find ourselves in heaven, maturing will take place. And this sort of illustration continues in verse 12. Uh, dim sight and partial knowledge will become clear sight and full knowledge. In verse 13, we read the conclusion of this chapter, and it's a lovely one. Uh, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is, uh, of course, a statement meant to tie it all together. We know that uh, gifts and knowledge will pass away. So what is left in a Christian? Faith, hope, 
and love. Christians are, of course, people of faith, and it's by grace through faith that one becomes a Christian and stays one. Uh, Christians are also people of hope as we look to forward to uh, a coming age where all our troubles will be gone and we will dwell in the house and presence of the Lord forever. As important as these two are, they too will pass away when the perfect comes. There's no need for faith in heaven. There we will see Christ face to face. There's no need for hope. Um, as all our future hopes and longings and desires will be fulfilled. But there will be love, and it's in this sense that love is greater than both faith and hope. God will continue to love us, and we will love God and each other to a greater degree than we can even conceive of right now. The church may be a community of love, but as Jonathan Edwards so famously points out, heaven is a world of love. And what is contained in verses 4 to 7 in this chapter will utterly mark every inhabitant of that place. Before we close, I want us to consider some final applications um, of what we've studied here this morning. Um, we've learned how important love is, how it expresses itself, how it will remain. But where do we get love from? Uh, I've alluded to this elsewhere in this sermon, but love is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. So that we can't produce this type of love that we've been talking about without the Spirit first working it in us. Um, and so if we would have more of it, we should pray for it. If we would have our brothers or sisters to have more of it, we should pray for them. And when the Spirit does work in us, um, trusting, as we do, that God is pleased to give good gifts to those who ask for them, uh, we are to walk in love. Second, in order for Redeemer to flourish into a community of love, I urge you to try and contemplate those ways in which you specifically can add to the function and health of this church body. Uh, think of what gifts you possess or what exactly you can bring to the table to edify, to exhort, to console, to encourage your brothers and sisters. Um, pray about this, ask others about this, and then make it happen. Uh, no one in this room is dispensable or expendable. Um, your presence and contribution matter. And that's why God's called us all to be a part of a local church body, uh, to act as members and to use our abilities to help one another. As a last point of consideration, um, while our pastors are gone, I want us to consider how we can love our pastors. Um, so that when they get back, we can make their job easier um, and more enjoyable, because theirs is a tremendously burdensome task. Um, first, we love our pastors by praying for them. We pray for their well-being, uh, for their preparation and delivery of sermons, uh, and for God's grace and leadership as they shepherd his people. Charles Spurgeon, who undoubtedly is the greatest preacher to have ever lived, said that uh, the key to the success of his ministry was that his people prayed for him. We love our pastors by taking care of them, uh, by contributing what we can to help them pay for their ministry, uh, by giving them words of encouragement and thanks, and by uh, regularly checking in on them to see how they're doing, um, see what they need, and meeting those needs. <coughs> Lastly, we love our pastors by submitting to them and not insisting on our own way. 
They're going to do things we don't like. They're going to make mistakes. Uh, they're going to make errors in judgments. But we've been called by God to submit to their leadership, knowing that it is they who have to give a stricter account to them in light of what they do. What this means is that by and large we save criticism for important things and trust them in the rest. Um, we follow their leadership so long as it is biblical. Um, they show us their love to us by doing what they do for us, uh, by praying for us, by teaching us, by shepherding our souls. Um, so let's show our love for them in these ways that I've mentioned and create here at Redeemer a community of love for them as they come back from their trip. Let's pray.